you are now entering the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. First, I want to talk about the monthly sweepstakes. I am actually recording on the 7th, so as you're listening to this, I am in the process of contacting the winner of the first giveaway to give them their Steam key. And now I can announce that the next game that I'm going to give away is Luna's Wandering Stars, which I'm really excited about because that is actually a game made by one of my guests, uh, Z Yang. You can check out his episode, which is episode five, where we actually talk about this game. Check out that episode to to find out more about it. But it is a puzzle game that is based on the actual physics of objects in space being acted upon by gravity. It's very cool. So to be in the running for this, check out plus7intelligence.com slash loot, L-O-O-T, and enter there. So if you're interested in that, be sure to head to the loop page and enter. And remember that entering once allows you to be in the drawing for all of the following games that I'm giving out. For example, everyone who already entered for this first month and who are in the drawing for the first game, World of Goo, they are still going to be in the drawing for Luna's Wandering Stars. They've already signed up, so they're already in the drawing. I am really excited about this episode because it's it's the first episode that's sort of tabletop game-centric. This show is about video games, but the core ideas behind it apply to really any kind of game. And in particular, I really love board games. Uh, I may actually like them even more than video games. And the main game that we talk about in this episode is a tabletop role-playing game, which I don't have as much experience with role-playing games, but I definitely do enjoy them, so I was excited to talk about them. Today's guest is Matt Forbeck. He is a prolific author and an award-winning game designer. His list of projects is literally 18 pages long, so I can't go over all of it, but some things that caught my eye. Uh, He worked on the Lord of the Rings role-playing game. He's written novels in the Halo and Guild Wars universes. Today, we mostly focus on his new tabletop RPG, called Shotguns and Sorcery, uh, which is actually based on a series of novels that he wrote. I was really excited to talk to him because he has a lot going on in the crossover between games and traditional fiction stories, and I was really interested in how he bridges the divide. And a note, uh, my half of the audio was distorted somewhere in the recording process, and I was able to fix some of it, but much of it I had to re-record, so I apologize for any weirdness that goes on because of that. And with that out of the way, let's get into the interview. Thank you so much for coming to talk with me, Matt. Thanks for having me on, Chess. It should be kind of fun, I would hope. <laughs> How did you get involved in designing RPGs? Uh, that's a good question. I started out when I was pretty young. Um, I grew up in southern Wisconsin, a little town called Beloit, Wisconsin, which is on the border with Illinois happens to be about 40 miles or 40 minute drive from Lake Geneva, which is where tabletop role-playing games were born um, under TSR hobbies uh, and under Gary Gygax and also Dave Arneson. 
And that meant that I could go to game conventions with, you know, all the top game designers in the world right there from when I was a very young kid. So, for instance, this is Gen Con 50 coming up this summer. Gen Con is the world's largest tabletop games convention. And it's being held in Indianapolis in the middle of August, like usual. And my first one was Gen, Gen Con 15, which was being held back at UW Parkside between Racine and Kenosha back in those days. So this will be my 36th Gen Con in a row that I've gone to uh, for the main shows. So uh, 35 years running. And Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, when you start out that young and you start uh, seeing people do this for a living, it gives you the idea that, hey, maybe I could do something like that. I started out uh, when I was in college. I met a guy named Will Niebling, who had formerly been the first sales manager for TSR for Dungeons and Dragons back in the day. And he was doing sales repping for a lot of different companies like Mayfair Games and Iron Crown Enterprises and Grenadier Models. And he had me help him out doing that. He brought me all, uh, all sorts of different gaming conventions like Origins and the Game Manufacturers of America. And uh, they have a big trade show in Vegas every year. And I would work in these booths with these different game publishers. And, you know, we'd go out and have drinks at dinner afterwards. I'm like, you know, I can write that kind of stuff for you guys. And they're like, well, why don't you give it a try? So I ended up working my way in that way, uh, kind of by being a booth weasel, as they used to call us, the guys who would show up and run demonstration games and things like that. And uh, worked at it through college, and then I, I ended up going off to Games Workshop when I was fresh out of college on a six-month student work visa and worked for them for six months, which is a long, convoluted story. But uh, it ends up with me coming back to America and uh, working as a freelance game designer for many years. And after that, I worked – I co-founded a company called Pinnacle Entertainment Group with a buddy of mine, Shane Hensley, which did a game called Deadlands, which was a big uh, role-playing game hit. And we mm -hmm. won awards for that for role-playing games and card games and miniatures games and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and then I came back to Wisconsin after we started having kids where I grew up and uh, went back to freelance game design. So I've been doing that ever since. Mostly nowadays I write uh, novels and do nonfiction books like the Marvel Encyclopedia and things like that. But I still keep my hand in the game design as well. So what are you going to be doing at Gen Con this year with all your projects? I guess you could be in any number of booths. Yeah, this year I gotta, um, I'm basically working on three different tracks. Uh, the first is the Industry Insiders, which is the um, essentially the game design track that Gen Con runs. And I'm, I'm part of the committee of people that selects the uh, featured presenters and the speakers for that. And we, uh, so I, I do some uh, stuff with that. I also work with the Writers Symposium, which uh, is wonderful. They've got all sorts of different top best-selling authors show up. I think Charlene Harris, Charlene Harris is our, we did True Blood as our guest of honor this year. Um, and then also they have a track for Gen Con 50, because this is the 50th Gen Con. So for the big round number, they're going to have a retrospective where they actually have a, a museum they're going to, uh, build and house for that one weekend at the, I think it's supposed to be at the 50-yard line of Lucas Oil Stadium where the Indianapolis Colts usually play. Um, so I'm going to be part of that as well. And just running around and having a good time. I'm also, the uh, Pat Rothfuss has got a charity called World Builders, and I'm going to be uh, running and hosting a game there for that as well as part of a charity event that they're doing. And just running around. Also, my wife and kids show up with me, so I'm going to be running around playing Dungeons and & Dragons and other games with them and having a good time. There's a They Might Be Giants concert on Thursday night, for instance, which we're going to do. So the project that I first connected with you about is called 
Shotguns and Sorcery, which was a series of novels that you wrote. Can you give an overview of what those novels are like? Uh, Shotguns and Sorcery, I like to say, is if you took Raymond Chandler and J.R.R. Tolkien and put them in a blender, <laughs> uh, the, the, the beautiful frozen margarita that would come out would be Shotguns and Sorcery. So it's a, a fantasy noir setting. It's set in this place called the Dragon Empire, or uh, Dragon City, actually, right? That's ruled over by the Dragon em- Emperor. Uh, essentially what happened is that a thousand years ago, these this undead horde raged across the continent and slaughtered everybody, except in this one area around a mountain where the dragon prevented the the zombies and such from getting anybody. And the people who had survived cut a deal with them, said as long as you can keep the zombies off us for long enough for us to build a wall, uh, we'll let you, you can be our emperor, we'll let you rule the kingdom that we're going to found here. So it's a city-state essentially that's built on the top and inside of a mountain that's ruled over by elves and dwarves and, and gnomes and hobbits and humans and such. Um, and at the top of the mountain, you have the dragon emperor, and then below that you have the elven reaches, then the dwarven stronghold, gnome town, the burrow where the halflings live, the village where the humans live, and then just down near the, the edge of the wall where uh, you can still hear the zombies screaming at you and, and clawing at the at the stones every night. That's Goblin Town, where the green-skinned people live, the orcs and the goblins and the kobolds and such. And, uh, so it's just kind of a dark little fairy tale with uh, some, you know, jack-booted elven thugs running the place, and you're you're part of the people who are trying to squeak out a living amongst all that. It's it's good fun. <laughs> uh, we ended up licensing the cipher system from Monty Cook Games. Monty is an old friend of mine that uh, worked on Third Edition Dungeons and Dragons, amongst many other things. Um, but the cipher system was for his game Numenera, which became the basis of the new Torment video game that just came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, Monty licensed us the core system for that, which we turned into Shotguns and Sorcery. And we have a guy named Rob Schwalb who worked on 4th and 5th edition Dungeons and & Dragons, and Rob did the, the tuning of the game to the setting, and I wrote the setting for it. And uh, so it's kind of this... Uh, you know, for me, it's a dream team of developers and writers working on this. I'm pretty excited about it. And we have Jeremy Moeller, who's the publisher over at um, at Outland Entertainment and at Ragnarok Publications, who are publishing the game. And Jeremy's our main artist on the game as well. He's fantastic. So uh, just I'm really looking forward to seeing the whole thing out. It's going to be a beautiful product. So where did the idea come from to turn this series of novels and the setting into a, a tabletop RPG? Well, originally it was going to be a tabletop RPG way back in the day. I had started out thinking of this um, back in like 99, 2000 or whatever it was. Uh, Wizards of the Coast had a, a um, an all call for worlds. They said, can you can anybody out there wants to come up with a world for our next D&D setting? You can send us in a one-page idea. We'll take a look at it, right? And I think I got like 10,000 entries or something like that. I got nuts. Um, but I had come up with a few of them and just sent them in just for fun. My friend Keith Baker ended up winning the whole thing. He ended up uh, doing a game called, or a setting called Eberron uh, for Dungeons and Dragons, and I was pretty excited about that. In fact, uh, I was working with the guys at, at Wizards at the time, and I knew Keith, so they actually write, asked me to write a trilogy of novels for that. So Keith wrote the first Eberron trilogy of novels, and I wrote the second one. They came out uh, alternating with each other back in the day. But uh, one of the settings I had come up with was the shotguns and sorcery idea. And I, uh, when Wizards of the Coast didn't buy it, I turned around and, and looked for somebody else to publish it. And it actually had licensed it out to Mongoose Publishing, 
which were doing lots and lots of D20 stuff back in the day. And uh, we were all set to go. I had a, a, a great deal in place. I was going to license to them, write the, the product for them. Um, unfor- well, not unfortunately, but <laughs> the fact is my wife became pregnant with quadruplets at that time. And oh, so, wow. we, yeah, <laughs> so uh, that kind of tabled that whole project. I just didn't have time for, for managing to pull that off. So uh, the guys at Migros were good about it. We just you know, gently broke the agreement with each other. Uh, and I put it in a, in a shelf for many years. And eventually it came around that I was going to do this project called 12 for 12 in 2012, where uh, I thought I was, I had this crazy notion where I was going to be able to write a dozen novels in a year, right? And yeah, kind of funny. But uh, I'm like, you know, I'm a pretty fast writer. And if we make them like, you know, 50,000 word novels, which is about, you know, most novels I was writing in those days were about 80,000 words. So 50,000 is is definitely novel length, a little bit short for a novel, but still a novel. 40,000 is usually the cutoff for most award systems. And I said, I can write a dozen of those. Let's break them up into uh, four different trilogies. That's 12 novels. And then we'll run a Kickstarter for each one of those trilogies and see if we can get them funded so I have enough time to go off and do these. And we actually managed to do it. I ended up getting four Kickstarters funded. I think we raked in about $60,000 between them all. And then I was off to the races and started writing. So um, this was the second trilogy of the four. And uh, it went very well. We had uh, actually, uh, in the last day, I thought we were going to fall short of getting enough money to fund all three novels. But uh, Neil Gaiman was kind enough to tweet about it for me. And um, Will Wheaton is a friend of mine as well. And he tweeted about it for me and a number of other people. And we managed to bump it over the number that we needed. So uh, just by the skin of our teeth in the last few hours of the campaign. And then... About, I think about a year after that, we had a company approach me, maybe it was even just six months, that had done uh, this thing called Steampunk Homes, which were these enhanced ebooks that, uh, you know, they had a lot of character drawings in them and maps of the city and music and animations and all sorts of things to really bring the book alive uh, for Steampunk Homes. And they said, hey, we'd like to do that for other stuff. And they licensed Shotguns and Sorcery for me to do this. Um yeah, but then they ran a second Kickstarter for another slew of books they were going to do, and Shotguns and Sorcery was going to be the third one. The second Kickstarter failed. So uh, the company ended up folding after that, and they never did it. However, they had hired on a, an artist to uh, work on this project with me and an editor, um, Ellie Soderstrom, and then the artist was, uh, was Jeremy Moeller, who ended up running Outland Entertainment. And mm-hmm. after everything folded, Jeremy looked at me and said, Matt, I'd really like to do this with you, but I don't know if I know enough about doing enhanced ebooks so we could do that. How about a role-playing game? And I'm like, you know, I, I could probably do the role-playing game on my own. I've done a number of role-playing games in the past. Um, but after Jeremy bugged me for a couple of years, I said, you know, I'm never going to get around to doing this because I've just got too many other things on my plate. If you're that interested in it, sure, I will license out the role-playing game to you. So he said, sure, and he went and ran a Kickstarter for it, and uh, – it's a little bit late on getting it out the door, but the Kickstarter funded very well. And Jeremy, unfortunately, ended up going through a divorce, uh, which sucked up a lot of his time. But he's back on track now, and he's partnering up with Ragnarok uh, Publications to get the book out the door. So right now we're just waiting on a little bit of artwork. Uh, he's hired in a few other artists to help him out with that. And with any luck at all, we should be having it out the door in December or January, is what I'm told. Um, hmm. That's a long, convoluted path to get it out the door, but it's finally going to be here. We actually, we had partnered up with another company called um, Nocturnal Media, and that was run by a buddy of mine, um, Stuart Wick, who 
uh, if you're a longtime game designer or gamer, you might know Stuart was one of the people behind White Wolf Productions and you know helped out with Vampire the Masquerade and Mage the Awakening was his big game. But Stuart, unfortunately, out of the blue, dropped dead um, about a month and a half ago, about a month oh, after wow. they had announced the, the agreement with Nocturnal. He was actually, um, he's like 49 years old and he was practicing fencing, believe it or not. And something went wrong with his heart, and he just he literally died with a sword in his hand. Yeah, too young oh, by a long, long way, and I miss him desperately. But uh, but that again threw the production of the game into uh, disarray for a little while. But we're going to soldier on without him in his wake, and do, you know, obviously, hopefully, they'll dedicate part of the game to him and to his memory. Wow, I, I guess this game has had a really long and winding story behind it. Yeah, it's it's you know from basically 17 years of trying, so it's gonna finally be out there in 2018. I guess so about 18 years later than when it originally came up. But, but yeah, that's one of the good things about doing creative stuff is you know you never throw your ideas away. They they find their way out there and they worm their way in somehow. And if you're lucky and you live long enough, everything gets gets out there eventually. So the mechanics of the shotguns and sorcery RPG are based on something called the cipher system can you tell us what that system is like uh it's an interesting system in that it's uh, what they call player faced right so the game master sits behind a screen and, and has his materials there or his or her materials and the players have their character sheet the uh the characters make all the dice rolls right the game master doesn't make any dice rolls at all they just uh you you present the situation the characters if somebody attacks them they roll a dodge roll instead of uh, having to worry about damage being done against them. It's also got to do with uh, trying to find, it's, it's very much based upon exploration, right? The cipher system is, and finding these things called ciphers that uh, are like one-shot magic items that you can use throughout the world. And they generate very quickly as you adventure. So uh, you're encouraged to use them and make use of them and not build up to them. And it's kind of fun. Um, mm-hmm. And Monty did a great job integrating this with his, with his Numenera world. And then um, another friend of ours, Bruce Cordell, did the same thing with a second game that Bonnie Cook Games put out called The Strange, which is more of a multidimensional science fiction kind of setting. Um, and when we were looking at doing Shotguns and Sorcery, they were like, oh, we're about to come out with a generic rule book for that. We would love to have you guys do a, a Shotguns and Sorcery version of the game. We're like, no, that makes a lot of good sense. Let's do that. And unfortunately, you know, hopefully we would have had it out about a year ago, a year and a half ago. But like I said, there's been a few uh, reasonable delays. And then the book will be out shortly. This is one of the problems with Kickstarter, right? It's it's not that games didn't get delayed in the past. Games always got delayed in the past. Books got delayed in the past. But nobody knew about them until they were almost ready to ship. <laughs> um, so the delays yeah. happen in secret without anybody saying, hey, wait a minute, what about my game? But on the other hand, I mean, if it wasn't for Kickstarter funding, we wouldn't have a lot of these games funded and, and ready to go at all. They just never yeah. would see the light of day. So I think it's amazing that we have Kickstarter to, sh- to drive these things to market but you know the frustration that people are having this is the frustration that the designers would just have in private before and now everybody gets to share the headaches publicly so since shotguns and sorcery was a novel series you you have an audience that has you know certain expectations and a certain familiarity with the story and the universe so what aspects of the novels were really critical for you to translate and replicate in the tabletop version. Well, you know, fortunately, like I said, this game was originally going to meant, was meant to be a game. So uh, there's a lot of that, that that translates through into the setting. 
And the setting, originally it was going to be a D20 game, which is what 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons was based on. Um, and it was, uh, so translating it over to the Cypher system wasn't all that challenging. Part of that's because, again, Monty was one of the original creators for 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons. And that informed a number of the things that he did with the Cypher system. So uh, mm-hmm. it all comes back around. You know, we're, we're all, you know, I've known Monty since my first big book ever came out was Western Hero back in, 1992 so i guess that's 25 years ago and monty was actually the editor on that book back for iron crown enterprises in the day um so we've known each other for a long time and it's uh we're in the same writers group together we live in different cities so we, so we don't see each other as often as we used to but you know a lot of the sensibilities that i had for the novel were stuff that monty had going for him when he was doing the game design so uh it wasn't terribly difficult to translate the one thing I did not have in the books that Monty had in the cipher system were ciphers, actually. So I'm like, well, does that fit with the game? I'm like, yeah, we can figure out how to make that fit with the setting. Part of the neat thing about this is that things tend to feed back into each other. So if you have a great idea for a game rule that can fit into the setting, then you do that. If you have a great idea for a setting thing that you don't have a rule for yet, you just come up with new rules for it, right? I used to do that all the time back when I was writing D&D novels as well, right? They'd say... Well, there's not a particular magic item that do, does what you want to have it happen in this situation. I'm like, well, that's easy enough. I can design that for you, right? It's not all that hard to pull off, especially since I've been doing game design for you know decades before, a couple for about a decade or twelve years before I started writing novels. So a lot of the stuff you can just get to feed back into itself, but it's kind of fun. I mean, for instance, for the last week here, I've been working on uh, the map for. Uh, Dragon City with the people who are working on the role-playing game. And, uh, you know, the guy who's doing it, uh, Alan, uh, I can't remember his last name off the top of my head, but Alan's been doing an amazing job with it. Uh, you know, my crude map is like you know, something that maybe a 12-year-old would have drawn, and Alan's a professional artist. <laughs> uh, but the trick then is me saying, yeah, I didn't draw that very well, but can you remember to put this part in that's in the books? And um, I think we went back like a, a dozen or more times back and forth saying, Okay, we're getting closer every time. And, man, he was great and very understanding about me saying, oh, that's not quite right, or this needs to be added on here. But at the end of the day now, we're going to have this gorgeous map that's going to work well, just as well for the game as it will for the books when we come out with new editions of those as well. So that should be pretty fantastic. Um, you know, and, and from my point of view, when I'm doing this kind of stuff, it's all storytelling at the end of the day, right? You're Whether or not you're telling it through a role-playing game or you're telling it through a novel or you're telling it through a video game or a card game or a miniatures game or uh, if you're doing it on Twitter or whatever else, it's all about storytelling. And so Shotguns and Sorcery from the ground up is meant to be something that uh, was a fertile ground for stories of of all sorts of different types, uh, no matter what media you happen to be telling them through. And fortunately, I've worked in lots of different media over the years, so I was able to maintain that and make sure that it was relatively flexible before we even started out. Try not to paint myself into corners unless I have to. So the final product isn't out yet, but what have fans of the novel thought about what the game has turned out to be? Well, so far, so good. They've seen playtest versions of it. They, we put up uh, artless versions of it as well, so they can play with the text. I'm not sure if any, how many different games are going out out there right now. People are probably waiting for the final version to come out before they really start digging in. Um, but we haven't had any complaints so far. I've run it a couple different times at conventions. Actually, I'm planning to run it for the World Builders event at Gen Con too. So if anybody's interested, come by and, and run uh, and come by and join us. Uh, it's going to be on Saturday afternoon, 
at Gen Con. I think tickets were pretty steep because they were trying to raise money, but it's, it's all for a very good charity for the World Builders, which do- donates to Heifer, Interna- Heifer International, amongst other ones. Um, I had tickets are like $130 a head. But if you get the cash and want to sit down, I'll teach you all about it, right? And you'll end up being in the room with a lot of different famous game designers and authors as well. We're all going to be playing different games and having fun while we're doing this. Shotguns and Sorcery isn't the first time that you have bridged the gap between a fantasy world and an interactive game. You've actually written novels based on games and created games based on existing fictional universes. What are some things you look for when you're making that transition from one type of medium to another? Yeah, it's a good question. I, uh, I've done this a lot of times over the years. My favorite example of this is a game I did back in, uh, God, I think it was the uh, 15, 20 years ago now. It was called Monster Rancher. I did a Monster Rancher collectible card game. And um, it was for a company called Artbox. Monster Rancher was kind of a Pokemon knockoff. It had its own series of cartoons that came out. Um, and it had a PlayStation 1 video game. And it was fairly popular. And it, there was a company, Artbox, that wanted to do a, uh, a collectible card game version of it. So they hired me to do that. And, you know, this was in an age when my children were, I think I had just one child at the time. He was pretty young. Our eldest boy, Marty, who's going out to college now. So that tells you how long ago this was. And uh, the company said, okay, we need you to do this. Come up with something. I'm like, okay. They sent me 26 episodes of a, of a half-hour cartoon to watch uh, that was for kids that I probably never would have sat down and watched on my own, right? Because my kids weren't mm-hmm. old enough for it, and I was, I was too old for it. Uh, and also they sent me the, the PlayStation 1 video game, and I sat down and played that too. Uh, so your first trick when you're doing this kind of stuff is to sit down and immerse yourself in what exists already, whatever it happens to be. And then – Figure out what it is about it that people love. You know, what is it? What's the core experience? What's the core character? What's the core message or ethos or whatever you want to talk about that resonates with people, right? Whether it's in the show or the video game or the card game or whatever, and then figure out how you can translate it into something else. You know, what what do people care about for this? And if you can be true to that core ethos of the game or ethos of the game, of of whatever it happens to be. That's something that will go and you can translate over to any media whatsoever. Um, you know, what is the game about? What is the story about? What are the characters about? What do they care about? And with uh, Monster Rancher, I, I decided that it really had to do with, you know, it's like many, the, the kids' cartoon is mostly about the power of friendship, as a lot of this stuff is. But the core experience is really about monster battles under a clock, right? You can, and the rising tension that goes into these arena battles with monsters. So I basically built that into the game and how I could figure out how to make it exciting and feel like you're under a time pressure about that as you went. So uh, when you when you play the game, the, the game actually has an arena that's built with a line of cards on each side. And you have the option to take those cards off as you go. But if you do that, that actually cuts short the amount of time that you have in the arena at the same time. Um, so it gives you options to play with, but also increases the tension that you're playing under. Uh, and I thought that worked out pretty well. You know, the game sold pretty well. People were fairly excited about it. The game design did pretty well. Uh, the the cartoon unfortunately did not do very well, and the company was looking for uh, a, basically a secondary Pokemon off this, and it never quite hit that level. But I was pretty sa- satisfied with the game design at the end of the day, and I think the people who played it were as well. 
But again, the, the whole idea when you're translating any, anything like this is to figure out what's that core experience? What is it that people are going to know that resonates with this? And then bring it over to whatever medium you have to be working in. I ended up working on a, uh, on a big game called The Beast many, many years ago, which was the first alternate reality game. Uh, and it was we built this for, uh, for AI, which was the Spielberg film that he took over from Stanley Kubrick after Kubrick died. And we built out this entire secondary future history uh, through websites. And it was all done through Microsoft, through a guy named Jordan Weissman, um, who was a creator of Battletech and Shadowrun and a bunch of other things. Uh, and Jordan had us help him build, us, build all these different websites from a future that didn't exist yet. And that was just great fun, too, just building out this kind of stuff where, again, you know, what is it about this setting that we think is going to excite people? And how can we tap into that and show people... Um, alternate ways to mess around with it and be engaged with it. And that was, that did very well. That was, uh, I think it won time of the year, um, awards for time magazines, uh, awards for, uh, product of the year for, you know, getting people involved in something in a new way. So, and that's gone on to spur all sorts of different other alternative reality games over the years. So that's an example of an alternate reality game, which can take many forms, but I guess in this case, People in the real world could visit websites that were created as if they had come from the story within the world as kind of like a alternate history or and even some of the rules of that universe might be different. Hence exactly. the term alternate reality. Yeah, the same crew went on to do one for Halo called I Love Bees. And uh, again, they did one for uh, The Dark Knight, the movie uh, called Why So Serious. Right. <laughs> Uh, but it was just neat ways to get people involved. I remember meeting Jordan at, at uh, Comic-Con that year, and he had this wild idea to get to get people to go to the website. And he basically went, and uh, if somebody gave him $100, he would give them $110 in ones. And every one of the ones had a, uh, a custom-made Post-it note of the Joker's face that went over George Washington's face, right? Because you're not allowed mm -hmm. to deface public currency. So it was actually not defacing it permanently. It was a post-it note that had been cut, die cut to fit exactly over George Washington's face. And underneath it, it had, why so serious? And so you would Google that and then go to whysoserious.com or whatever it was. And that would draw you into this whole alternate reality game that the Joker had come up with in Gotham City. Um, and it's just neat to see this, how you, know, you can cross between reality and story and fiction that way. And... You know, go from high-budget films to low-budget websites to, you know, literally handing out dollars uh, at conventions for people to get wrapped up in all this and, and mm -hmm. try to come up with innovative ways to get your message out, right? But to tell a story yeah. at the same time. Were you following what the forum buzz was about these sites and this game and all the theories about what was going on with this alternate reality? Yeah, I mean, that was actually the craziest thing. The... Uh, uh, the people who played uh, The Beast, the AI game, actually started up their own website, their own wiki, right, to solve the problems, the puzzles we had presented them. They got together to solve those together. And so we thought uh, when we were doing these games that, you know, we'll put up a puzzle and it'll take people a week to get through it or whatever, take them a few days. They were solving these. They basically uh, uh, crowdsourced their, the solving of these, their, their brains together and we're solving the puzzles within a matter of hours, right? And we're like, oh, mm -hmm. shit, we need to come up with a lot more stuff very, very quickly. Um, I mean, I was designing websites on the fly that were just, you know, put up very quickly. 
we, we at one point I was consulting on a, a Japanese web, uh, Japanese fo- cell phone game back before smartphones existed. Uh, that was all about uh, tea gardens, right? And, and this all somehow tied into the AI movie. It was just really wild. And, and they were embedded with puzzles in them that people would figure this stuff out. Um, but to have people just, I think it was called, what were they called? Cloud breakers, I think they called themselves. And they had this huge community that just grew up instantly and without any prompting on our part. And the funny part was the only way that you could find out the game even existed was to watch the trailer for the film, right? Mm-hmm. And originally, when the trailer came out, they had a credit for the movie in it um, that was shown in the in the trailer that said, Janine Sala, sentient machine therapist. And the only way you could find out about this was to Google Janine Sala. And if you did that, mm-hmm. it, would, it would bring you to her website where she was trying to solve the murder of her friend. Uh, I think it was Evan Chan or whatever his name was. Um, who had been killed in the far future, right? And so there was a murder mystery that we had gotten involved in from the uh, machine, sentient machine therapist who was consultant in the far future version of this film. Um, but, you know, it went really, there was a rabbit hole that we dug there for you that went incredibly deep. And people dove into it and just kept digging harder and faster than we ever thought they could. It was kind of insane to try to keep up with, but it was hilarious fun. Yeah, that's something that I've noticed is an interesting phenomenon about games that, I feel like it doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's really amazing to me is it's the phenomenon of people coming together and just pouring tons and tons of time and energy and investment just to face challenges in a game, right? They'll, they'll just go way out of their way and without prodding, without any kind of incentive, just for the joy of it and the experience of it. They'll throw themselves in and just do amazing, incredible things. That, and it kind of challenges uh, a lot of what we think about, you know, what it takes to to drive people and to motivate people. No, it's really stunning. I mean, you watch this. It's like the Gish Wishes thing that goes on nowadays, right, with Misha Collins. It's basically a, a worldwide scavenger hunt, right? Um, mm-hmm. But you set these things up and people just love them and they just dive in and with the, both feet first and their whole heart. And uh, Jordan used to say it was like, you know, game mastering, running a game for 5,000 of your closest friends, right? (laughs) And maybe 50,000 when you really get to the bigger ones. And it just gets insane how it eats up your life. But it's so much fun at the same time. And thank God these are limited time things or you would just, you know, uh, it would suck up every bit of your life. We were talking earlier about your method for translating a game into another medium or vice versa. Have you ever had a case where you made a mistake in that translation or at least the community disagreed with how you handled that transition? Yeah. Occasionally, you know, people, there's always somebody who's going to disagree with you. I think I did a collectible card game called wild storms way back in the day uh, with, with Drew Bittner and Jim Lee. Jim's now the uh, co-publisher of DC comics, an amazing artist, but he's also a big gamer from way back in the day. Right. So when uh, they decided that Wildstorm, which was a division of image comics at the time, wanted to do their own collectible card game, Jim was going to be one of the designers. They did a, a fine job with it. They called me in as the gaming expert to help them get it ready for market, to own it and, and smooth it out a little bit. But uh, when we were working on a game, I remember we had one character come out, and I actually got a death threat. I think it was the first death threat I ever got on the Internet. Like, whoever came up with this, I'm going to have to, he's got to die. And I'm like, 
dude, I'm right here. <laughs> what the hell are you doing? <laughs> um, and honestly, are you, you're that worked up over whether I, we got the stats exactly right for one character on one card in a card game? Um, wow. Obviously, you, you really need to find better things to do with your life. <laughs> Uh, the attitude I took. And once I, I said, hey, you know, honestly, I think you crossed the line here. Everybody else in the community stepped up and said, said dude, you need to chill out and back off a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Nowadays, I think there's a lot more uh, viciousness going on with that. There's, it's a little bit more acceptable, this whole Gamergate thing and everything else where people, uh, you know, violently call out game designers. And I'm like, this is, honestly, for something where we should all be having fun. And it's all made up. Yeah. Right? Why are you guys all that bent over this? Nobody's going to die about these things. If somebody does a game that you don't like, go play something else. Right? Hmm. Um, can I swear on the show? Is that okay? <laughs> uh, I might pick you out, but yeah. <laughs> well, my father is my is, is a favorite saying, which I've taken to heart when it comes to this thing, which is, them if they can't take a joke." <laughs> it's, um, you know, this is not meant to be serious. These are games, right? They're entertainment. And if you're that bent out of shape over, you need to take a step back and examine what you're doing with your life. And, and what I mean, I'm thrilled that you're that excited over the stuff that we come up with. I really mm-hmm. am. But uh, it should be good fun. It should be something you say, ah, I didn't like it that much. Fine. Move on. Do something else. Right. I, mean, I love mm-hmm. that people take the stuff seriously. We had a guy when we did Deadlands that uh, within, I think, six months of, a, of the game day viewing, uh, he met us at a, at a trade show at a, uh, at a distributor's warehouse. And he worked for the game distributor, right? And he pulled up his shorts to show us his upper thigh. And he had had a character called a Hanging Judge, a monster we'd come up with. He had a 12-inch tattoo of this monster on his thigh. And I was oh, like, wow. holy <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled that you were that excited about this character we came up with. But I can't believe, you know, we came up with this thing six months ago. And you've now got this character, this monster, tattooed on your thigh for the rest of your life. Wow. You know, wow. Just In one way, it's incredibly flattering, though, that somebody would take it that seriously. And in another, I'm like, wow, we really need to, as creators, we need to take it seriously, too, because people do embrace it that hard. But, um, you know, if you're going to be a fan and be huge about it, that's great. But if it comes to death threats, you know, have your fun your way, but don't try to uh, harm or even threaten to harm somebody else. I think at that point, uh, clearly you're taking it too seriously. As the Joker would say, why so serious, right? <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of gaming communities have a lot of growth to do when it comes to figuring out how to let people have fun and make their jokes and and express things the way they want to express things. But at the same time, not let jokes and toxicity get out of hand. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I just I don't think it's funny to joke about things like personally threatening to rape or kill people. <laughs> I, I've got a really dark sense of humor, right? I, I will laugh at just about anything. But, you know, that I think you're crossing the line there. And not even against me personally. I mean, if you're a friend of mine, you say, oh, I'm going to kill you for that. I'm like, yeah, 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 fine. Let's go have a beer. <laughs> um, but if you're some guy I don't know who's you know, threatening me and my family, I'm going to probably take that a lot more personally than if you're just some guy I met at a convention, right? Who I can look Mm -hmm. in your eyes and see that you're joking, right? The internet, part of it is that we're all communicating in text and not Mm -hmm. every person on the internet is very good at writing, 
believe it or not. They're not very good at communicating emotions through just plain text. That's hard for professional writers to do. And it's really mm-hmm. hard for somebody who, uh, who is just a fan of something who just wants to express their, their emotions about it to do. So I understand that it's not intentional all the time, but you know, that, that I think is probably the bright line that we should have and say, look, once you do that, and I'm not saying you're an asshole, well, maybe you are an asshole, but I'm not saying you're irredeemable <laughs> just because you did something like that. I'm just saying, step back and take a look, right? Step back and say, what did I just do here? And how could that be misconstrued? And mm-hmm. I think if you do that, you'll probably realize, yeah, I, I, I maybe should just step back. But a lot of people don't like to do that. They like to double down and say, yeah, yeah, screw you. I'll kill you all that. They're like, no, <laughs> you know, honestly, you wouldn't do that at the dinner table with your family and friends. Don't do it in, in public with everybody else either. You know, try right. to show yourself a little respect because what you're really telling us is that you're the asshole. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Whether or not you intended it, you're, you're, uh, you're showing more about yourself than you are about anybody else. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. I sound like an old man talking this way, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of people feel the same way. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, someone says something terrible and 20 people are looking at it and sighing and shaking their head and they either leave or they ignore it because responding in a way that's not equally emotional as backlash is difficult. Yeah, exactly. Who wants to be involved in a fight like that, right? I mean, nobody does. Right? That's the problem, right? The, the person who was threatened doesn't want to be involved in the fight. Uh, the person who made the threat probably doesn't want to be involved in a fight, just wants people to, to slink off and take it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the, the observers were like, oh, geez, again? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but at some points, you have to stand up and say, look, you need to be civil about this stuff. You, know, you, you wouldn't do this stuff any other way. And you know, show us show some respect for yourself, if not for everybody else around you. And come up with constructive things to say. Come up with, uh, or go off and do something mm-hmm. else. Or just say, God, I hate what you did here. I've had people tell me in my face that I screwed up their game. That's <laughs> fine. You're entitled to your opinion, right? You're entitled, if you paid money for my game, you're entitled to tell me you're disappointed <laughs> in it. If you didn't pay money for it, I'm not going to listen to you. Right? I'm going to go help out the people who did buy the game. Um mm-hmm. Or buy the book or whatever. But if uh, if all you want to do is rant at me, you know, go rant at something else. Go stick your head in your closet and scream or whatever you want to do to relieve stress in your life. But yeah. don't expect me to be your kicking uh, your kicking pillow or whatever you want um, or your punching bag uh, mm-hmm. just because you had a bad day or you didn't like what I did. That's fine. And like I said before, them if they can't take a joke, it's okay. I I, I get reviews online all the time. I take my five-star reviews and my one-star reviews in about the same way, right? The five-star reviews are people who love what I do, and I'm, I really appreciate that. But you know, I'm not, that doesn't offer me any kind of criti- critique that I can usually build off of, right? Right. But one-star reviews are the same thing. They're usually laughably bad, right? There are people that I never was going to reach with what I did. There are people that uh, they just hate the basic premise of it, and they shouldn't have even mm-hmm. looked at the thing anyway. They just think it's stupid. I'm like, well, that's fine. Don't waste my time. I won't waste yours. If you spent money on this, I'm sorry. Um, probably you didn't. <laughs> and if you did and you keep spending money on it, why are you buying the sequels? I don't get it. You keep doing it. Uh, but yeah. you know, it's the three-star reviews that kind of get me, right? Those are the ones who are like, oh, these are people that liked what I did, but just for something stuck in their craw and it didn't quite work for them. 
And those are the people I'm like, okay, there's something maybe I can learn from, from having a conversation with them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, keep giving me the five star review guys. I don't mind those. And the one star reviews, I will literally read them out loud with my, with my kids here and laugh. Okay. Because <laughs> um, I've got a thick skin at this point. You're not going to hurt me. But uh, there's those three star reviews where I start thinking, ah, oh, geez, you know, maybe I could have done that better. Because um, you always want to grow as a creator. You do want honest feedback and you do want uh, people pointing out what you screwed up and what you did well. And that's, I think, the one thing that people forget, especially if you're doing like just create, uh, critiquing with your friends or playtesting a game or whatever, or even editorial stuff where people say you messed up this, 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 and this, but they don't tell you the things you got right. And it's just as important to tell a creator what they did right. Because if you don't tell them what they did right, you just tell them what they did wrong. There's a tendency for people to want to change everything. Right? Hmm. They'll change everything in what they did, trying to come up with something that, that people will like. Um, and they don't they forget they will also change the stuff they did well and they will make it worse. So yeah. when you're giving critiques to people, whether it's in, on Amazon or Twitter or in person or you know as an editor or whatever, always make sure you tell people what they did correctly as well and what they did well. Uh, that, that way they know what they can improve upon. Or what they don't need to screw around with. But if it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, that's some great advice. Um, you know, and I'm starting to relate now that the show's gotten out into the world a little bit. How can listeners find out more about you and your work like uh, Shotguns and Sorcery? Well, uh, the easiest way to do that is go to forbeck.com. That's F-O-R-B-E-C-K.com. That's where my website is. And I do irregular updates there. You can also follow me on Twitter, which I'm on regularly at, it's at M-F-O-R-B-E-C-K, at M-Forbeck. Uh, I'm also on Facebook at, you can just look up Matt Forbeck and find me there. I'm nearing 5,000 friends, but I haven't quite got that mark yet, so I'm just still going on my own personal page there. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm happy to chat with people about anything, you know, and I, I'm a big fan of, you know, that's one thing about being a creator in games as well as fiction, is you start out as a fan, Right. The, the line between fan and professional in games is really, really blurry. Uh, even the guys who are doing stuff professionally are still fans of what's out there. We all have enjoyed the same kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, you know, if you see me at a convention, say hi. If you uh, want to chat with me on Twitter or, or whatever, uh, please do. I'm always happy to talk to people. And, you know, kind of share in the fandom, so to speak. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Matt. Thanks for having me on, Chess. It's always good to chat with people. You had some wonderful questions. It was a lot of fun. A big thank you to Matt for joining me on this episode. I was really amazed with how the idea for Shotguns and Sorcery as a game had been really intertwined with so many life events for Matt, uh, both good and bad. I had no idea going into this interview that it would have such a long and kind of complicated history. And it's cool to see it come to life. Here I was thinking that this game was all about just the joys of blasting magic monsters with a shotgun, but it has a whole lot going on uh, behind it. There's your intelligence boost for the week. Now there's a couple things that I wanted to talk about. First, for a little while, I'm going to be switching from, from an episode every week to an episode every other week. Everything's going great with the show. It's just that I've been working a lot of extra hours at work and... I'm having trouble keeping up with everything that I want to do for the show. So I'm just toning it back so that I can keep the quality of the show high. I'm not sure how long I'll be doing bi-weekly. I'd always plan to do this into like seasons. 
there'd be a point where I'd stop making episodes for a little while so that I could retool and come back with the second season. I still haven't decided when when the show should take a break. There's still some things that I want to do before the season is out. Uh, some opportunities that, that I'd like to capitalize on now before taking a break. But we'll see how everything shakes out and I'll keep you guys in the know. If you're not happy about not getting quite as many Plus 7 Intelligence episodes, well, there's some things you can do about that. You can support the show on social media and you can give some feedback and all that stuff. It's small, but it really does make a difference because it it makes my job a little bit easier. It makes it easier to reach more people, to find potential guests, and to create better episodes. So, so if you want some more episodes, show me that you mean it and support the show. You know, when I started the show, I wasn't the best at social media. I'm still not, but I've learned some tricks along the way. So here's something that, that might help you out if, if you don't really know where to start. On Twitter, first find the show. That's at seven underscore intelligence. And for each episode, I'll make one or two highlight clip videos. And these are really great because they're they're more engaging. They're, they're short and easily digestible. And something you can do with those is if you find the tweet where I have that video, all you have to do is reply to it and then tag, you know, maybe your favorite gaming podcaster or or maybe someone who you think would be a good guest for the show. Just tag them and then ask, what do you think about this? And then let the highlight clip speak for itself. And uh, that's a really easy way that you can share the show. So try that out and let me know what you think. And as a reminder, at plusofintelligence.com slash loot, there's a whole list of ways that you can support the show on social media with easy buttons to do all of it. And every time you do one of those actions, you actually get virtual raffle tickets towards the monthly giveaway. As a reminder, this month's game is called Luna's Wandering Stars. It's created by one of the guests on the show from episode five. So that sweepstakes is a great way to support the show and potentially get you a great game that you can play. Now, next episode, I'm talking with Tony Chan, and he has a podcast where he interviews gaming industry veterans. We actually did a sort of crossover experiment where I was on his podcast and he appeared on mine. So in the show notes, I have a link to the episode where he interviewed me about the creation of Plus 7 Intelligence and some of the struggles I faced along the way. So I'll see you soon, and you can check that episode out. In the meantime, that's the Game Dev Loadout Podcast. There'll be a link in the show notes. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.